you'll open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 30 this morning. Let me say, as we're looking this fall, we're sort of unfolding what our strategic vision is for our church, and it revolves around four major areas. The first is worship. And you've heard us talk about worship. We've wanted to move our worship to excellence, to revitalize what we're doing in worship. We're working hard at that. Second area is cultivate, which has to do with relationships. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We'll be talking about the third area, which is the area of impact, which is mission. And the fourth area, which is fortify, which is all of our support that's necessary to carry about this vision. So those are the four major areas. And we're working diligently in each of those areas. But today we're going to come to the second one, the area of cultivate. It was interesting last week when I heard Richard preach that sermon last week, I was just absolutely, God just moved me. I don't know about you, but it was a very, I think one of the most powerful sermons that I've heard him preach since I've been here for a couple of years now. And what he really focused on was on chapter 2, verse 12, which is that passage that says we're to work out our salvation. Now, you know, obviously right there, Paul's not talking about our justification. We don't work out our justification. That's something God does. We're justified by God's grace. What he's talking about is our sanctification. We have to work that out. And Richard said to us last week that what we have to do is learn how to work out this salvation practically. We have to know how to work it out in our everyday lives. He said that our hearts and our our heads and our hearts have to work together. And you know, I went home last week and I kept trying to do that, moving my hand and my foot, you know, that he showed us. I never could do it, you know. It was very hard to coordinate those things. And so often the problem is it's hard for us to coordinate what's in our heads with our hearts. And one of the major things we're working on this area of cultivate is moving from education to transformation. Now, let me define what what is meant by that, education to transformation. Education, and we're great at this. We have wonderful teachers here, and you have wonderful preaching here. And we can teach, and we can educate, and we can give you more information. But I'm going to tell you something. If it doesn't move out of our heads into our hearts, it's not going to change us. Does that make sense? I mean, you can be the most biblically educated person in the world. You can know all the Bible. You can know all of the the theology, the doctrine, the confessions of faith. You can know all of that and it not be life transforming because it's all up in our heads and not in our hearts. And part of the process that Richard told us last week of working out our salvation means that we have to learn to apply. These were the words he used. I wrote them down to apply the Scripture to the messiness of our everyday lives. You see, our faith is not something we just come here on Sunday morning and spend an hour doing. Our faith involves every single aspect of our lives. And so today I want to pick up on this idea of working out our salvation, beginning to apply the Scripture to our everyday lives. And and I'm going to tell you up front what I'm going to say. This is the key. The way that we work out our salvation best is in the context of relationships with others. The way that we work out our salvation the most effectively is in our relationship 
with other people. And thus we have a focus statement. If you've looked, ever looked at that diagram that's in the playbook, right in the middle of it is the focus statement. And that focus statement, look at your outline. The focus statement is, is right there on your outline, the top of your outline. And it says this, equipping the body of Christ to engage in radical, gospel-driven, personal relationships. Now look at that carefully. To engage in radical, I'll define that when I get to the end of the sermon. What do we mean by radical? Radical, gospel-driven, gospel-driven. They're driven by what we have in Christ, gospel-driven, personal. We've got to get involved with each other, relationships. So that's the core this morning of what we're going to be talking about. And here's basically what, what I'm going to say to you. Look, we need each other. Right, Marianne? We need each other. We need each other. And I'll tell you, we need each other. We need people around us. We need people who are involved in our lives. We need people who love and care for us. We need people who stick with us through thick and through thin. We need people to challenge us, people to encourage us, people to hold us accountable, people to mentor us, people to equip us. We need people in our lives. We need others as we attempt to work out our salvation. Now, it's really interesting because Paul goes from that concept in, the, in chapter 2 in, in verse 12. And he comes to the passage we're going to look at today, which he turns to relationships. So I want you to look at it with me. You're going to see uh, how important these relationships were to Paul. Remember, he's in prison when he writes this letter. Now, Paul could have been discouraged, defeated, and despondent. He wasn't when he writes this letter. He speaks a whole lot about joy in the letter. He wasn't that because his hope was in his Savior, Jesus. He kept his eyes on Jesus all through this. But let me tell you, out of God's goodness and mercy, God sent people to Paul. People who ministered to him, people who encouraged him, people who were there that he could count on, who loved him, who served him. And, of course, Paul, in his classic fashion, not only received the ministry, but he gave the ministry back to them. And so that's what you see in our passage this morning. So look with me now. Start at verse 19, chapter 2. This is God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proven himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself may come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. 
Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and to honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? And this morning, Lord, in these next few minutes that we have to look at this passage, I pray that your spirit who inspired Paul to write these words would illuminate our hearts and that you'd speak this morning. For we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to take just a minute first. I want you to look at the relationships here. And there are three very significant relationships you find this passage. First of all, you find the relationship of Paul with the Philippian church. He had a relationship with the church. He had a relationship with the body of believers. And then there were two intensely personal relationships with this young man, Timothy, and this other leader out of the church in Philippi whose name was Epaphroditus. I want to just take a minute and and just look at those three relationships. Remember that, as Richard has told us when he introduced this series, that this was the first church that Paul founded in Europe. And so the people there were very, very significant to him. He cared about this church. He loved these people, and they absolutely loved him. And Marianne read this passage at the beginning where Paul, when he, right at the beginning of the letter, he says this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. He had a deep love for these people. While he was in Rome, the people there in Philippi continued to pray for him. They ministered to him. In fact, they sent this man, Epaphroditus, with a gift. The church sent Paul a gift. And they sent it through this man, Epaphroditus. And now Paul uses this occasion to thank the Philippians. But as Richard told us also, it was far more than that. This letter is not only a thank you letter, but it is encouraging the Philippians, encouraging this church, encouraging them. And their faith. And the central theme, which I, I agree 100% with Richard, many, many of the commentaries you read immediately say the, the great theme of the book of Philippians is joy. But I'm going to tell you, I, I think that's the byproduct of the central theme. The central theme was the centrality and significance of Jesus Christ in the life of believers. He encouraged them in their walk with Christ. And as a result of their walk with Christ, it produced great joy in their lives. Now, what was it that they had? Now, look, here's what I want you to get this morning. Because <clears throat> let, let's turn away the Philippian church and let's talk about us. First press. Do you understand that what we are is a family? We're family. Because when we become Christians, when we become Christians, we are brought into the family of God. It's called the church. The local expression of the family of God is the local church. We're family. We're to love and care for each other. And it's in the context of this family, these family relationships, that we are brought together in a common bond. Now, there, it's true. Look, there's so many of you I don't know. And yet I know this about us. We have a common bond, and that common bond is our faith and love for Jesus, right? Isn't that true with every one of us? I mean, what is it that automatically holds us together? It's that common bond that we have 
And that's what Paul was talking about here. That's what these people had. And he had a relationship with that church. Now, much more I, I need to say about that, but we've got to move quickly today. I want to turn these other two intensely personal relationships. So he had a relationship with the body. In other words, there was a community of believers, and he was connected to that body of believers. And there was this very close family relationship that was taking place with that local church. That is one of the things we're working very, very hard here on to be a secure home for God's people. Where we're family. Where we're family. And even though we don't know each other, uh, some of us barely, we maybe recognize each other, but we don't really know each other. However, there's this bond. We're family, we're family, we're family. And when one member hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. That's the concept here. Now, let's move to these two relationships. Timothy, you remember Timothy, converted as a child. Paul, Paul was the one who really discipled him, who equipped him, who entered into this radical, gospel-driven relationship with Timothy. <clears throat> and that explains why Paul, when he writes in, in 1 Corinthians about Timothy, he calls him, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy was like a son to him. And later, Timothy, you can read this in Acts 16, Timothy became one of the partners who traveled along with Paul. Luke was also there. And it was then that Paul developed this very, very close relationship with him. And so when Paul writes this letter, you, when I read it a minute ago, you heard it. When Paul writes this letter, this is what he says of Timothy. L listen to these words. I have no one like him. I have no one else like him. And he goes on to talk about this. He says, I have no one else like him. Timothy's proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Now, I want you to look at that relationship for a minute there. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. Paul invested his life in Timothy. And I'm going to tell you something that... I believe with all of my heart, and it's been a practice of mine all through my ministry, is that we need spiritual fathers and mothers. My dad, if you were here the last time I preached, I preached and I told a little bit of my own story and told about my relationship with my father. My father died when I was 20 years old, and I have always looked for older men as role models to be fathers for me. And in every church, I've served three churches. This is the fourth. But in my churches over the years, I always found men who were those older men who ministered to me, who loved me, who cared about me. I knew they loved me and cared about me. They were my fathers. If you go to my study at home, on my bookshelf right behind my desk, there are five pictures of men. They're all with the Lord now, but they were the men who invested in me, who, who prayed for me, who encouraged me, who served me. They were fathers to me. Now, I want to I pick it up both ways. We need spiritual fathers and mothers. But those of us who are oldest, we need Timothys. You see, if we're going to invest, if we're going to get involved in radical gospel-driven relationships, we have to be looking for spiritual sons and spiritual daughters that we're willing to invest in. That's what you see in this relationship 
with Paul and with Timothy. Paul was that father. We need those kind of mentors. We need fathers. And that remember working out our salvation? I just think of these men. I miss them so much. Men that I just knew I could go talk to. I could, I could share my heart with. And I knew they loved me and cared about me. We've got to have those kind of relationships in our church. We've got to look for those people. We've got to be fathers, and we've also got to look for those Timothys. We've got to look for sons. We've got to be some of you who are women, older women here. I'm going to tell you, the Scripture talks about the older women mentoring the younger women. Do you see the relationships? Now, here's my question. Who's your Paul and who's your Timothy? Who are they? Okay, if we don't have one, we need to start investing in that. All right, quickly, Epaphroditus. A little bit different relationship, similar, however. Epaphroditus, leader of the church in Philippi, was sent by the church to minister to Paul. Look what he says of Epaphroditus. He calls him, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. Not the same kind of relationship A different relationship. He wasn't necessarily a son to Paul like Timothy was. Remember what Paul says, I have no one else like Timothy. But Epaphroditus was a different relationship. And Paul, he was sent to minister to Paul. But think what Paul did for him. He says, he's my brother. He's my fellow worker in ministry. He's my fellow soldier in this thing we call life in this hostile world. And you see, we need those people. We need those people who are our brothers. People who are there to encourage us. People who are there to fight the good fight with us. To encourage us. So there's Epaphroditus. Now here's the point. Look, here's the point of what I'm, I'm making here. What we see in this passage is the importance of establishing gospel-driven relationships and the importance of developing a sense of community in the body of Christ. That's what you see in this passage. That's the core of it. Now, let me quickly move into what do we mean by Christian community, the importance of that. One of these major parts of our vision is the development of a strong sense of community. And let me just talk from the heart here a couple of things. First of all, in a large church, and I've served, my church before I came here was a large church about the size of this church. Typical with all large churches, the, the big back door of larger churches comes in community life where people don't get assimilated and become part of the family. They just don't become a part of the family. And we, ha- we have this, probably, maybe even some here this morning. I'm going to say this in all three services today. We have people who come here, they come to worship, and they leave here, they never connect. And I'll tell you, it's honestly, in these larger worship services, it's, it's hard to connect. You know, it's feasible for you to be here and nobody even speak to you. And we, we really try to work at that not happening, but it does happen. There have to be efforts made where you move yourself into deeper levels of community where you can meet people, people who will encourage you, people who will help you work out your salvation. That's our biggest back door. And to me, as we look at this whole vision plan, the most difficult area that we're going to have to work on is this area, community life. 
How do we do community life well? And let me tell you, we don't have it figured out yet. And so we're going to ask you, pray with us as we're working this out. What, what kinds of small group ministries do we need to have? How do we take our Sunday school classes and really make life communities out of them? Those are the things we're struggling with here. But we recognize they are critically important. We have to be able to have these kinds of, of community. And look at the quote that's on your outline. I quoted my friend Tim Keller. I was just to, to look. This week, I was with 10 of my friends. We've been together. This was our 23rd year of being together. 10 of us. Tim is one of them. And we've spent all of these years just developing these really, really neat relationships where we pray for each other, we encourage each other, we talk. And Tim, in his book, Center Church, writes this. He says, growth, <clears throat> growth in grace, wisdom, and character does not happen primarily in classes and instruction. Now, I want you to please look at this carefully. Growth in grace, wisdom, and character does not happen primarily in classes and instruction. What do we get in classes and instruction? Head knowledge. Remember what we said at the beginning? You've got to connect the head and the heart. If you only get it in the head, it doesn't get to the heart, it's not going to be transforming. So what he's saying is it doesn't happen in classes and instructions, even through large gatherings, worship gatherings like this, or even in solitude when we're by ourselves. Most often, growth happens through deep relationships and in communities where the implications of the gospel are worked out cognitively and worked in practically. I cannot say how important that is. One of the things that I see today, look, let's face it. Let's be honest. Why in the world are we in the condition that we're in today in this country? And, and you know what? Don't blame it on politics. Don't, bring it on, don't blame it on our leaders. You know where I see the primary problem is? is with the church. Just like in Western Europe, after the Reformation, there was a sweeping move of the church that had influence on all of the culture. But before long, churches became internalized. They lost their effectiveness. They lost their influence. Go to Western Europe today and see what the churches are like there. They're dead. I just read this. Interesting statistics. Do you know, here's the problem. Listen. The problem with us today is that most of the churches, by far, Southern Baptist statistics that has just come out, Southern Baptist statistics, the largest denomination, says that 75%, 75% of their churches are in plateau or decline. Only 15% are healthy and growing. What we found with ECO is the same thing. A common thing with almost all the ECO congregations is that it's plateaued or in decline. That's why this vision is so important. It's a vision of renewal, where we rediscover the gospel, where we get the gospel again. And then we can go out and do what we're saying in our vision, growing faithful Christians to do what? To engage and influence the culture with the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Listen, my friends. The hope of this country is not in politics. It's in God's people being the people of God.
Now, it's time for us to get serious about this. It's time for us to start praying for renewal. It's, pro- it's time for us to rediscover the gospel again. Are you satisfied that we're in a denomination where the vast majority of churches are plateaued or declined? Are you satisfied that's evangelical church today? That's the rule, not the exception. They're in decline. And the only way that's going to happen is to see a rediscovery of the gospel. And here's the point I'm making this morning. How are we going to work out our salvation? How are we going to rediscover the gospel? How do we learn to work out the implications of the gospel? You know how we do it best? With each other. With each other. We need to be in these radical, gospel-driven, personal relationships in which we can learn how to work out the gospel. You know, we have so many people who are professing Christians who say, I'm a Christian, but you look at their lives and their lives aren't, have not been transformed. Divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate of, of unbelievers. On and on and on with problem after problem. Why? There's no transformation. We had better pray. And we'd better pray that we begin to see, you know, how do you rediscover the gospel? You rediscover the gospel when you begin to see what we heard at first. Here was, as Phil took us there, and here's this blazing glory and holiness of God. And when you see that, it puts you like Isaiah on your face. And you see your unworthiness. Listen, it's time to quit this self-righteousness. And it's time that we're driven on our knees in deep repentance. And when we're driven to our knees in deep repentance, it's only then that you will discover the wonder of God's grace. The wonder of the love of Jesus. The significance of the cross. And when you begin to see that, you're going to see in your own life the idols of your hearts, those things that you've made more important than Jesus. And we rediscover the gospel. Look, we desperately need each other to work out the implications of the gospel. It was such a blessing for me this week. I spent three days. We've done this for 23 years now. We put ourselves up three days we spent praying singing worshiping telling our stories seeking prayer trying to learn from each other how are we seeing the gospel worked out that's why community is so important there is no question no question that relationships greatly greatly determine and influence what our character will be And it's in these relationships that we're going to learn to work out our salvation, to apply the Scripture in the messiness of everyday life. Now, I'm running out of time. Don't even have to look. I knew this one. This morning I got all frustrated at 6 o'clock. I looked at this stuff and said, there's no way for me to cover all this. But here's what I want you to think. Now, look, just take the four areas. And I'm going to go very quickly here. Then I want to pull it to a close. Take the four areas. How do we really learn how to worship I'm going to tell you how I've learned it's being a part of a worshiping community when I begin to look around and I begin to see people who know how to do it doing it. 
That's why this corporate worship is so important. You see, when, and that's, by the way, let me tell you this. Latest statistic, latest statistic, the most active members, most active members of evangelical churches are attending 1.7 t- times a month. That means that our folks are here less than two times a month in worship. And I'm going to tell you something. When we neglect worship, we are neglecting being with other believers in worship so that we learn how to, how to appreciate God, be in awe of God, and see God. Part of what we're doing here is we don't want to assume everybody knows how to worship. We're, we want to equip people how to worship. And part of you do it in community. Let's go to the second area, cultivate. Character is determined by the people you hang around with, right? I remember telling my children over and over, your friends matter. The friends you choose, they're going to help shape your character. You believe that? Isn't that true with us, though? You know, who are we going to be with? Where are our closest friends going to be? Where are we going to, are we going to be with people who genuinely love us and are interested in us? And who care enough about us to confront us when we need confronting. And to love us when we need loving. To fly to Houston. Because we have a friend who needs us. We've got to do that. And we've got to do it together. And part of the way that we learn how to work out the implications of the gospel. Theologically. Practically. It's going to be to be with each other. We, marriage, how do we learn how to work the gospel out in our marriages? We do it together. How do we learn how to parent children? We do it together. How do we learn how to handle the stress of life? We do it together. You get the idea? That's why community is so important. And I could talk about impact. There's no question that the greatest witness, the greatest witness is the community life of God's people. That's what God said. How did, what was the early, what did the early people look when they looked at the people of God? Do you remember what they said? Look how they love each other. There is an unbelieving world out there that desperately wants community. And one of the greatest way we reach out is to show the world what a loving community is and how to love and care for each other and not backbite and fight and complain and nitpick as happens in so many churches. Listen, the world needs to see Christian community. They long for it. And unfortunately, some of the illustrations they see are not very good. And I could go on to general. How do we learn how to use our resources? I'll tell you one way. Generosity is contagious when we begin to see it in the life of the others. All right, let me pull it down to close. Let me tell you the core to all this. The core to all of this is the gospel. That's central to everything that I've been saying this morning. It's the gospel. Our natural inclination is to be selfish and self-serving. That's our natural inclination, is to use people for our benefit. But when the gospel comes into our lives, it changes us. And then it becomes radical. Because no longer do we use people for our own benefit, 
But we began to relate to them for their benefit. That's the radical part. And it's gospel-driven. It's how do we reach out with the principles of the gospel and live it out. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when Richard preached from Philippians 2 and he took us to Jesus? Do nothing out of selfish or ambition or empty conceit, but with humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And it, took, it showed us Christ who gave up everything for us. Everything, everything, everything. He humbled himself and became obedient, went to the cross. And what is Paul saying? That's the attitude. That's the attitude. That's what's radical. That's what's gospel-driven. He calls us to those kinds of relationship. What did these, what did Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the believers at the church in Philippi have in common? They had been radically changed by the gospel, and they ceased to use other people and instead became servants to them and with them. And each of them desired to have an influence in the spiritual growth of, growth of others within the networks of their relationship. They begin to work out their salvation together. People, we need each other. Now, I want, to, I want to leave you with this. What are we doing? We encourage you, first of all, to make every effort possible to develop these kinds of relationships we're talking about. Work at it. But secondly, to pray for us as we seek to develop that kind of community here at First Perez. So I want to talk to three folks, three kinds of folks this morning. There's some of you who've been attending, some of you for a long time here. Let me tell you, we need you in the family, and you need to be in the family. Consider taking those steps of making a commitment of coming into our family here at First Perez. There are others of you who are members, but you're not engaged in community life. You're coming and you're leaving. Take those steps. And then thirdly, those of you who are involved in community, be sure that when new people come in, you welcome them, you encourage them, you help them become a part of the family. That's our responsibility to each other. We don't have it all together. We're going to be working out what small groups look like, how we're going to try to shape Sunday school classes. But I'm telling you what our heart is. Our heart is radical, gospel-driven relationships in which we seek to help each other work out our salvation. That's God's call to his church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. I know I feel real frustrated right now because there's so much more that needs to be said. But I pray, God, that you give us the passion to see community here. That you help us see our responsibilities of being partners together in the gospel as we seek to work out the implication. Partners in Christ's service. That we would learn the art of sharing side by side and friend with friend to develop these kinds of gospel-driven relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.